Welcome to Stories from the Center of the Universe, the podcast about the human experience. Mark Jenkins, welcome to the Center of the Universe. Well, thank you so much, Paul. It's good to be here. I guess we should explain how we connected. Uh, My dad called uh, Berea Baptist Church in Rockville, Virginia, looking for you, trying to get you on the phone and asking you if you'd be willing to be on my my dad's son, me, my podcast. And you, uh, a day later, not even 24 hours later, you're sitting here with me uh, in my house recording. This is is awesome. And and I should mention the reason I wanted to connect with you is you have uh, a lot of experience and uh, knowledge about Israel and that region and and the dynamics of, of that entire region. So welcome. Well, thank you so much. Cool. All right. So let's start with you. Let's learn a little bit about you. Uh, did you grow up in Richmond? Yes, I was born and raised in uh, Richmond, Virginia. What? I, I sort of lived all over Richmond. I had my parents uh, separated when I was uh, very, very young. And so uh, I had a mother that lived sort of in the northern end of the of the metro area. And my father lived across the river, across that big river that people don't like to cross <laughs> in Richmond, the James River. And so he lived over in Southside. So I feel like I've sort of grown up all over Richmond because I had other uh, family members that lived sort of in between. So I've, I've lived all over Richmond, I think. I think there's not a neighborhood I probably haven't been in <laughs> at some point. <laughs> so, so you lived in Hanover County? I've been, yeah. My father used to have some property out in Goochland. So okay. um, so uh, when I was in high school, I used to, uh, there was a farm out in Goochland that uh, that I used to go out. I would hunt um, quail Okay. and uh, we would camp and, and uh enjoy the the land out there and then my wife and I decided um, we lived in the west end of Richmond for about 20 years when raised our two sons there and then we decided let's go down in the country so we ended up moving out to Goochland not to the property that my father had but a piece of property that's uh, uh, off Fairgrounds Road that that we like and you feel like you can be one with nature out there I imagine Oh, uh, more or less. It's a, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit, it's more suburban. Really? It, it reminds me a little bit of what I experienced with my, uh, you know, when I lived with my father over in the South side, it's, it's a, you're in, you're in neighborhoods. Okay. So I'm not on a large tract of land. I would like that. It would give me a little more freedom and flexibility to maybe do some things I like to do. But, um, but no, I'm in a residential area and I'm a bit amused by it because it's a, um, uh, what I find is, is that um, when I first moved out there, I thought I would be moving out with people that were sort of used to living in the country. And uh, what I found is there were a lot of people that just, you know, for whatever reason, they wanted to get out of the out of the city, like we did, but they were not used to living in in the in the country. And I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. Uh, my my mother's family was from northwestern Virginia. So, I mean, they grew up used to, they had a farm. They had a general store there by the road. They Which which county are we talking uh, about? Bath County, Virginia. Okay, sure. I went to a wedding there once. Uh, so, uh, yeah, they used to provide produce to, like, the uh, uh, homestead and uh, there in Warm Springs. So, so uh, you know, to me, the living in the country was that you could hunt and, you know, or you'd have a garden or you would, you know, you, you, you'd, you'd live off the land. And so when I moved to Goochland from being in the west end of Richmond, 
I sort of expected that kind of almost to encounter what are we going to, are my neighbors going to be more oriented, that, that kind of thing. And then I would hear complaints when they would hear gunshots in the woods <laughs> and they would say, what is this? This is terrible. People are, you know, the people are shooting guns in the woods. And I'm th- I would hear a gunshot in the distance during, during you know, deer season and think, Oh, that reminds me of my youth, you know, sure. with my uncles. Yeah, yeah. And I that sort of felt nostalgic about that, but then I didn't realize, oh, my neighbors aren't used to that, you know. And Gunshots equal bad in the city. Yeah, equal yeah. bad. And 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 uh, another incident which was really amusing to me was um, the very first um, uh, ice storm we had after we moved out there. Um, we had, we, of course, we lost power, and I remember going out. As soon as we had first light where I could see with my chainsaw. And uh, the first thing I noticed is when I went outside, I only heard my generator running. I didn't hear a single other generator in the neighborhood. And I'm thinking, I don't think these people realize that, you know, you, you got a well, you've got to pump water. You don't have a public water system to feed you. you you're, you're on your own. And, uh, and so, uh, so yeah, they didn't have water. So I was I was hooking up garden hoses to my house and running water to my neighbors. Oh my goodness! So they could get uh, to get some water, and we offered them a. They wanted to use our bathroom for a hot shower or whatever, but the but uh, that came later actually. But the first morning I went out uh, in the cold and started trying to clear trees that had fell, had fallen, and uh, I thought naively that my neighbors would join me in that effort and they didn't the only thing that happened was a uh, uh, one neighbor did come out and handed me a business card and asked if i could help clear their yard when i was finished they thought i was a contractor so it's just a different experience i mean i grew up uh, uh raised by a different generation who was like i said used to living off the land and and so now i'm out in goochland county and it was just to me it's just really not so much being out, out. It's more like being in a, in in suburbia. And and actually, in the last twenty years that I've been living in Goochland, it really is the suburbs now. I mean, it. Yeah, I haven't been out to Goochland in a, in a while to yeah. explore. I I know Goochland from my childhood, and it, it was completely rural the yeah. entire place. Uh, but these days, it sounds like it's turned into uh, every other suburb across the country. Oh yeah, absolutely. At least the I imagine the eastern part of the county. No, and I and my impression is because of the uh, being at Berea and being uh, uh, on the sort of Hanover side, um, I'm seeing more people that are a little bit more what I have expected when I went to Goochland. You see a little more people that are involved, and they've got uh, they've got cattle or they've got uh, some other kind of livestock. You know, right? They've, they've got you know people who have chicken coops and people who have gardens and farms and people who hunt and that kind of thing. So I've encountered more of that actually working at at uh, Berea, uh, then at the Baptist Church there in in Hanover. Yeah, they're they're then still I did a lot. Goochland. Of- Goochland seemed to me to be more resi- more suburban, and Hanover was a little bit more. I don't know country. The, what I expected. The, there are burbs uh, in Mechanicsville. There are burbs uh, in and around Ashland, uh, but I would say most of Hanover County. Everybody knows how to fend for themselves and. If things shut down, they would still be okay because they know how to live off the land, as you said. Yeah, I grew up, as my mom would call me, a townie. <laughs> I grew up in the middle of Ashland. Uh, so I, I I could probably be dangerous living off the land, but I, I might need some help. Like, like I think most people uh, in this country, unless they live out in parts of Hanover like you described. Uh, all right, so 
What was your childhood like? What was it like growing up in the Richmond area? Uh, well, because of my parents' divorce, um, and it was a contentious divorce, I don't talk much about it because um, I don't know what good it would do. Um, but it was it was it was contentious and difficult. And the the saving grace for me was that my mother was one of thirteen children. Oh my goodness. Uh, and most of them married, most of them had children, and I grew up with 29 first cousins. Just, just to compare that to me, I have three. <laughs> <laughs> so I, so there was a crowd. There was the Graham family. It was my mother's family, my, her maiden name, and we, called them, we used to call them the Graham Mafia mm. because it was the family, you know, and, and they kind of hung together. And so I feel like in a way, uh, my parents separation the the mend for me was the the fact that I'm, i i had this big family that kind of raised me so i i feel like in a lot of ways i had a lot of moms and i had a lot of dads and it also meant that i lived in different parts of richmond and uh slept on everybody's sofa um so uh i think that was uh that that helped me a great deal in in my young life and and i would say that uh, you know again these were these were, most of my mother's family ended up in Richmond. Uh, they were following my mother, really, because mm. uh, my mother was what I would have considered to be the matriarch of her family. And so, um, so uh, yeah, it was really interesting. They were, they were, they have so many different siblings, so many of them right here in the Richmond metro area made it really, really easy for me. It sounds like, so when, growing up for me, I went to four different schools. A lot of kids, if they don't move, they go to three or four schools. How many schools did you end up going to because you're moving around so much? Well, I, I went to, uh, I was able to go to, uh, my father was a fairly successful businessman, so um, he made it possible for us to go to collegiate schools. So we went to the collegiate schools, and uh, I went through that for uh, most of my most of my education, uh, early education. And, uh, of course, I went to it when it was tiny. You know, it's it's... It sounds more impressive now than it probably was when I went through in the in the uh, in the '60s, because I think the entire school was only about 200 people, right? Um, and it was it didn't have the facility that it does now, and or maybe even the prestige that it has now. But it was a good school, good education. Uh, so I went there, uh, and, and then I left there and went to live with my mother during my high school years, and that was a culture shock because I went from this sort of private small school education into a public high school. Mm. So I ended up going to Hermitage High School and um, wow, that was major know, cult culture major shock. culture shock, major culture shock. What year shock. did you graduate high school? I graduated in 1977. So 77, yeah, you're not even 10 years removed from uh, integration of the schools, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so it's why I, I kind of wish you went to collegiate all the way through because then I would consider you an arch rival because I went to St. Christopher's. Oh, you went to St. Christopher's? I, I did. Did you ever know um, Mr. Woodard? I knew uh, he was the first person I met there because he gave me the test, the entry test uh, to get into St. Christopher's. I did the opposite of you. I went to St. Christopher's in eighth grade. I did public schools K through seven okay. and then eight through 12th at St. Christopher's. Woodard, and in fact, and we're going to get into this a lot more heavily, the first place I went to meet Mr. Woodard, the first person at St. Christopher's I, I met, was at the Jewish Community Center. Wow. Not, not far from St. Christopher's. And that's where they taught me how to do homework and how to think about school. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So how do you know him? Uh, Mr. Woodard was one of my homeroom teachers. I don't think he ever taught me a course, but he was my homeroom teacher at uh, Collegiate. Mm. And um, 
he was a very, um, very compassionate individual. I mean, I, I mean, you know, you, you, you have te- I had several teachers over the years that, that really were, uh, very encouraging. You know, they, they, they sort of recognized without me sort of understanding, you know, um, like I said, my parents' divorce was contentious and uh, difficult, and custody battles ensued through a lot of my young life. And uh, there were a couple of teachers at Collegiate that sort of just sort of reached out and, you know, and, and were like, hey, we're here for you. And, you know, um, just seemed to be able to, you know, get through and say, yeah, you know, we're, you know, discomforting, I guess, is the only way I could describe it. Woodard, I had a lot of respect for him because he, he, he was one of those. He was just a very, decent man, very caring man, very supportive, uh, understanding. Um, and I had, I had one or two other teachers that I can, you know, I can remember there that wouldn't it be amazing. amazing. Wouldn't it be amazing if everybody was like that? Yeah, it would be, it would be, it but seemed he, impossible, but, but, he, but he's a remarkable, he was just a remarkable man. He really was. I, 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 you know, there, there are a lot of people in my young life now that I'm older and, you know, um, having, having cleared, uh, the big six, five, um, I think at this stage of my life, one of the things that I uh, wish I could go back and do is thank people, mm. you know, along the way. Because you, when you're in the moment, you don't think about, especially when you're a kid, and you're a young person, you don't you don't really think about the people that are around you that maybe are trying to help you, or maybe they, I mean, maybe they are, they are helping you in some way. I mean, I think um, uh, one of the uncles I spent the most time with, one of my mother's brothers. Um, as I think back on it, I think he invested a tremendous amount of time in me. You know, he taught me how to hunt, to fish, to camp. You know, I was with him so much. And then, you, and, 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 you know, he, he died um, in his early 60s. And, of course, I'm still not I'm, at that point. I think I was in I just entered college when he passed away. But I, I think about him a lot. I have a picture of him in my office. And uh, and it's just, I, I wish I could just say thank you. Yeah. Thank you for that investment. You know, Mr. Woodard, thank you for that investment. Uh, we got another woman, Mrs. Colby. Thank you for those hugs when I was a little kid in, in second grade and just needed somebody to go, it's okay. You know, you know, we're here for you. It, it's almost like uh, there are various rites of passage that, that you go through as you uh, uh, go through life. One of them is going to college. One is graduating college, getting your first job, getting married, those sorts of things. There needs to be a rite of passage when young men, especially, are in their mid twenties. Like, hey, guess what? Now's the time to, to show gratitude. And in fact, you're going to be doing this the rest of your life. But you start now. And unfortunately, you get to my age or your age before you. It really sinks in how important they were. But I think twenty five year olds are probably capable of, of thinking that way. But they need a, a pretty strong nudge to get there. Maybe I don't know how we would do that. It's just popping into my head. Now. Yeah, I know. But I think it's a fantasy of mine. Um, something that I play over and over in my head of, of, of these sort of, uh, what kind of conversation would I like to have with my, with my uncle that I mentioned, what kind of conversation would I like to have with, uh, my grandparents, you know, as an adult, because I think when you're younger and you're kind of coming through this life and you're trying to figure things out. And if, if you do have some additional challenges there, which a lot of our youth do now, um, then I think you can, you, you, you're sort of, you your peripheral vision, you don't have it. Right. Uh, you're, you're sort of looking uh, looking ahead and you don't realize necessarily what some of these people around you uh, are doing or how much they really mean to you. And so, 
you know, they're just conversations I would love to have, yeah. you know, that I'd love to say to my uncle, you know, thank you so much. I mean, I realize now as an adult, how much effort that took for you to spend to do that with me or, or my grandparents. Uh, what did you really think of all these things that were happening? What did you, what did you really think of me, for example? Um, you know, and, uh, do you understand now I can appreciate how much the little things you did meant and how they've, they remain as sweet memories that are embedded in my heart about just simple things that you did. And I just wish I could say thank you. So what I am doing, by the way, is uh, I'm trying not to, uh, I'm trying to almost do for my grandchildren what I would what, what, want that dialogue from uh from my grandparents, so I've been I've been writing them letters, and I've been writing down a lot of um, uh, my thoughts that I would like to share with them. That uh, maybe someday they'll open and read it, and it'll it'll answer questions. No, that, that, that maybe I would like to have for my grandparents. I love that idea. Uh, I'm not as much a writer, more of a uh, verbal guy. Uh, my uh, I started this podcast, and by the ninth recording or episode. I said, I'm going to have my dad on, and I'm going to have my son interview my dad with me. That's brilliant. My son, too young, too shy, didn't have a lot to <laughs> uh, to talk to him about, but I, I certainly was asking all the questions that I've always wanted to ask, and I learned a ton about my dad that I didn't know before that. It's just a simple recording, uh, and my son, his mind was being blown every time my dad uttered a sentence. It was it was quite the experience, and then I did it with my my mom and uh, my two daughters, and uh, that was quite the experience as well. So I, I'm, I think I'm going to have them come back and, and talk, have have all three of my kids come in and ask both of them questions together. Well, I think that's 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 a wonderful thing to do. First of all, it's hard to do uh, sometimes. I think fathers and sons conversations can be difficult at times. Um, um, I don't know what it is, but it, the, the but, microphone gave us the uh, the the path to, to talk. Uh, it was always easier for me to talk to my mom. Same um, for me. And, and so we would have long conversations and deep conversations. And, um, you know, with the advent of the uh, iPhones and, and the memo recording, I just started, when we would have those meetings, I would just, you know, or, or conversations, I would just go, what? I'm going to go hit record, put this on the table. And we would just have our talks. And those have, those have been very valuable to me. Uh, and uh, it's 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 a little bit melancholy when I play them back now that she's gone, but uh, but they're there, yeah, you know. And so I can you know I can share with my grandchildren. Of course, they're not interested now in a lot of this family stuff, but they will be later. I can say, yeah, this is your this is your great grand or your grandmother. It's there for great, all great, time. Great grandmother for my grandkids. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, that's uh... so it's great what you're doing. It's good to get a recording of that to share. Yeah, I. I uh... I'm very proud of myself for having that thought and, and actually following through with it. I'm, I'm really glad I did it. All right. You mentioned college. Where'd you go to college? Uh, I went away to college at uh, Chowan College in Murfreesboro, North Carolina. And uh, I went actually, this is really weird, but I went as a um, biology major. Okay. Um, I, um, how did this happen? I'm trying, I'm trying to figure out how this happened. I, uh, some of my summers I spent uh, lifeguarding. That ended up in taking all kind of first aid courses and things like that when I was in my teens, early teens. Um, and then uh, I started uh, getting into volunteer rescue squads mm. and, and uh, went into EMS, went in heavy into emergency medical um, work. 
And um, of course, in Virginia, it was a big volunteer system. You know, it was basically all volunteer. You know, the fire companies, they did fire. Um, but it was the rescue squads that did, uh, you know, vehicle extrica- extrication. Sorry, I'll say that again. The, it was the rescue squads that did the, you know, they had the crash trucks. They did the vehicle extrication. Uh, it was the rescue squads that were doing uh, uh, treatment and um, or trying to do treatment. And so I had this idea that, you know, I would maybe be a paramedic. That would, maybe that would be my career. Uh, even though I had this family business of communications behind me and a lot of experience, you know, just from being around it. Uh, but the, that that idea of being able to uh, to go into those situations really uh, and, and help people really inspired me. So I, that's what I wanted to do. But I had a dilemma. Um, one at the time that I was doing all of this, the state of Virginia was grappling with, well, what is it? What is it that you have to do to be a quote paramedic end quote? Um, so it's a um, I took all the courses that were would, would have been required to do that. Um, which are now sort of ensconced in whatever their, the structure is for a paramedics. But here's the other problem. The other problem was not just the curriculum, but there was no career path mm. because it was uh, volunteer rescue squads. The fire companies were not, did not have EMS paid EMS. And so there was literally no career path. So when I went away to college, I went away with the idea that I would just go biology and see where that would take me. So in other words, I'm still exploring the, um, the idea of some kind of medical-related field. So I ended up at uh, Chowan College, um, and Chowan College was a Southern Baptist school. Uh, I didn't choose it because of that. I didn't even know that when I went there, but it was required uh, when I went there that you took at least Old Testament and New Testament survey. So uh, it's so odd. I'm, I'm taking that because you required to take that, and uh, I'm also taking uh, you know courses in biology. But uh, I was really intrigued by the uh, the Bible lessons, mm. and so what I. <laughs> What I did was I, I I sat in the front row in in a, in a classroom where nobody wanted to be in there that was in there because it forced to take these course, and so a lot of a lot of a lot of my classmates have their heads down, they're not paying attention, or they're they're trying to sit as far away from this professor as possible. And I'm on the front row now. I had grown up where I had gone to church. I had went to collegiate, which you studied Bible, which was a requirement. Yep. Um, uh, it was like a St. Chris, but I'm sure you probably had a Bible course somewhere along the way. But I had a lot of questions that I was uh, too timid to bring up in any of those venues. So when I got to college, it was like, hmm, I'm here. I'm away from everything and everybody. And the guy, I'll never, I'll never forget this guy, was a, a Navy chaplain who took the, the first course I took as um, Dr. Parker. And uh, what was so funny about it was is that, uh, you know, he's he's speaking and I'm like the only student that's taking notes and watching him, you know, <laughs> in the classroom. And he made the mistake of saying, you know, these are my hours, my office hours, you know. And so, you know, uh, I think I don't think I wasted any time. It was like, you know, within a day or two, I'm, you know, I'm knocking at his door and, and just saying, I have some questions. And I riddled that man. Every time I every chance I got, I just riddled him with questions. I think he probably enjoyed it. I think he did looking back. I thought I was annoying him, but I think looking back, I think he enjoyed it. Um, so uh, um, it really drew me in because you, you ask all the questions and he said, you know, it, it, you, know you, you have to ask questions. I felt like I was an apostate by asking some of the questions I was asking. 
you know, and so, um, I guess those conversations led to an interesting change in my in my studies because I continued to take the biology courses, but he, he said, well, why don't you take this world religion course? You know, okay, I'll take this world religion course. Well, why don't you take this course in philosophy? So, okay, I'll take this course in philosophy. So um, he, in concert with my college advisor, started moving me moving me a little more into, uh, into religion, and then they put me in an honors religion program. Mm. And they said, we want you to do that. And, and, uh, and I have to say, I was acing those courses. Um, and I was, uh, uh, I wouldn't say I was struggling in biology. I was doing pretty well in biology, but I was, I was, you know, chemistry was killing me. And there were some other courses that I was, you know, going, this is kind of tough. And then I was, uh, at that point at a crisis, I was having an existential crisis. I'm like, I came here for biology. I, why am I ended up? I ended up with a degree in religion, and I had no idea what to do with that. What did you end up doing with that? So I came back, did nothing initially, but I came back, and um, uh, I continued to do rescue work. I continued to do EMS work during that period. Um, I was an instructor trainer for the American Heart Association, so I'd actually go and teach doctors how to do the CPR. Mm. But the... Um, um, I came back and said, well, I'm going to fall back on the family business. So I fell back on communications. And so I, I got a second degree in mass communications at Virginia Commonwealth University. Okay. And, uh, and that was interesting, too, because um, that was at the time that I went through, they really didn't have broadcasting and radio they were you know mass communications in that part in that era we're talking in the 70s and the, during that era it was everything was more print think about it, the technology then it was more print oriented so yeah the internet it was just journalism thing, it was just yeah. journalism you know you tell me, this is what we do this almost classical journal journalistic journal training or whatever orientation so it wasn't so the, so they were they were struggling to try to come up with well what do we have with like a degree program in in TV you know radio and so uh, the the amusing part about that was is that so they had uh, equipment and they had a lab but they didn't know how to use a lot of it so because of my family orientation the business you know it was me and there was another guy in there and we would we would run the lab and ran the equipment so I was I was acing some of these courses, you know, because the labs, it was like, I, I just run the lab, you know, and for the professor and, and, and we're good. Is there a grade higher than a plus kind of thing? Yeah. It's like, thanks guys. You know? So, um, but anyway, it's a, um, so now I have a degree in mass communications. And so I'm, I'm thinking, well, I got to do, I, I got to do something with that. So I ended up going into, in, in communications and started doing a video initially corporate video, mm. uh, corporate video production. Um, and then I went, uh, uh, then I went into, uh, private production work. And interestingly enough, I went and did the training videos for the department, uh, the, uh, the state department for, of, uh, for emergency medical services, state EMS. So I ended up doing the training films mm. for, um, you know, uh, basic life support, advanced life support. So I felt like I'm I'm using you bl- blended both. I'm using the skill, and that actually was sort of my rationale for the MassCom degree. Actually, I mm. thought, well, there's a lot of things I like. I just really love. I'm just really like to explore everything, and it was hard to pick one track. So, you know, if I go into communications, I could be I could be on a fire truck one day, but then I could maybe be 
you know, interviewing someone that's interesting the next day. Maybe I could be traveling someplace interesting or exotic another day. So, so the idea there was it's sort of like, well, I don't have to choose. I can I have a skill set that I'll apply, and I, that'll be my ticket to explore the world. And so that's really what I did. And how, uh, how old were you when you had this? I, I, we can I, call it an epiphany I mean, or something yeah, else. Yeah, I, I guess I was, uh, let's see, I went away uh, college. I was, well, I guess, what, 17, 18 years old. And so I think by the time I went into mass communications, I was probably 20, 21 maybe. Um, the other thing that happened is I met a girl I fell in love with and got got married, but uh, not right away. I still had, I, I, I we got married within a few months of of me completing college, which actually drew that out because then I had to change my course struck. <laughs> had to go to work and that made delayed my degree a little bit. But, uh, but, um, but yeah, it was, um, it, it's interesting. I think everything in life you end up using. Um, I use the, I use the skills that I learned in EMS, not only to do, educational programs on EMS because I sort of understood the, understood what you're trying to communicate. But the other thing was I got skills that I used in everything and everything else. I, I had to do photography in very challenging situations. And I actually developed um, a reputation for doing photography that other people couldn't do. In other words, uh, you know, I could, I knew how to repel. Mm. So I could put a camera on and I could repel down a, a cliff or down a building if I needed to. Um, if I needed to rig a camera to a roller coaster, I used to do a lot of the work at Kings Dominion on those point of view videos of roller coasters. That's people cool. probably saw over the years on TV. Sure. Um, if you if you needed um, to do underwater, I was had been a diver since I was a young young man, um, and uh, so I would take cameras underwater. So I I started developing a a an ability pulling from all of those experiences of EMS and everything else that I learned. Um, and applied it to the photography to get cameras in places that are difficult to get cameras. And so that, that became sort of my calling card. And I mm. think that's how I, I ended up uh, doing the projects that I did, uh, um, and whether it was in private production, um, you know, working with agencies or working for the networks. And I worked for pretty much every network as on projects hmm. over over the years, almost everyone. I'm trying to think if there's one I didn't. I didn't do too much with ABC, but I was primarily NBC. But I did work for CBS, and I did work for CNN, and I did work for Reuters, and I did work for um, pretty much anybody that you know either needed what I what I could do, or 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 or, or just needed a a director that had been tried and proven. So you were going from uh, opportunity to opportunity. You were effectively an entrepreneur. Exactly. Uh, so you got to pick and choose what who you would work with and what projects you would work exactly. on. Exactly. I mentioned NBC. People know NBC, but uh, I probably did the most work with them. Um, not sure how that came about, but I ended up doing the most. They, one project leads to the next, to the next, to the next. Uh, you had to have a certain uh, uh, equipment to do it in those days. I'm sure it's probably still this true today, but you had to have a specific, very specific list of equipment. It was very expensive. And that was a bad thing, and it was a good thing. The bad thing was is that you had to spend a lot of money to get the equipment that you needed to do that kind of work. But the uh, uh, that was the bad news. But the good news was it kept a lot of people out of doing it. Mm. In other words, if you could not do that successfully, you could not earn a living. Yeah. And so it wasn't like everybody had cameras and everybody could do it. So the, the field was a little narrower. 
but working for the networks uh, and working for NBC in particular, it was challenging because the thing that you knew was that you could never, you could never fail. You could never not show up for an assignment. You could never not walk away with the material they needed. So if you, if you did that once, you're done. Yeah, your reputation's ruined, right? You're done. Yeah. So, um, you know, so that developed a sort of discipline that uh, of being prepared for any any contingency, and that stayed with me too because I did a lot of live television over the years, and um, and so you you just have to be prepared for anything. Were you always behind the camera? Uh, I was, um, and I'm very comfortable still today behind the camera. I don't like being in front of the camera, but. Uh, it was actually the Israel that brought me, put me in front of the camera. Um, but I ended up, I, I, the, the, the big segue is, well, how do you end up in Christian work? Because that's, you know, I mentioned the religion degree. So the religion degree comes into play later in my life because while I'm doing all this production, working with networks, and I, and I feel like I'm advancing my career, I'm actually getting getting somewhere, and, and I'm having these some amazing experiences and being able to travel and we lens projects on five different continents, and we did another specialty I had was aerial work. So I did a lot of aerial work, was trained to do aerial work, mm. and install aerial systems. I mean, systems on like helicopters, for example. Um, so the idea there was that, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm making, this is me. I'm, this is what I'm going to do. I know I know what my, what my life's going to be and where I'm going. I'm having some success with it. And then... Uh, the pastor of uh, Grove Avenue Baptist Church, Dr. Vander Warner Jr., um, come, showed up in my office one day and said, I, I really need your help. Uh, we need you to come and help us with this broadcast at the, at the church. Because uh, they've been broadcasting they, for they a were long the, time. They were the original. Yeah. They were the ones that started broadcasting out of a church. First ones to have church, uh, cameras in the church. They're first ones to, uh, one of the first ones to actually uh, broadcast um, or, or use broadcasting you know, of a worship service. Um, uh, on television, and uh, so yeah, they were the, sort of the granddaddy of all of that. And um, Dr. Warner didn't actually start that, but he he was a he was the one that really took it to a whole nother level. But uh, what happened was is that uh, in the early days of television, the only people that had equipment were the TV stations. Mm. So if you needed any kind of production coverage, video videography, or anything like that. You had to get it from a TV station. There really wasn't any other option for you. So if you, um, in, in the case of the church uh, in Grove Avenue, so it was a TV station that would provide all of the production know-how and equipment mm. to, do their, to do their services. The problem came in the late 70s. And it started happening in the mid-70s to, uh, to the late 70s. And it actually, you know, technology changes things for us, right? Technology changes the landscape. And uh, Sony developed a, 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 um, uh, a, a well, the, it was not just Sony, but there was Sony, JBC, Panasonic, but they were all working toward trying to produce camera systems cheaper, trying to uh, make things more portable. Sony really had a breakthrough with what we call the helical scan systems for recording because it, it used to be that all videotape, all, all your videotape was like an open reel. Like, remember all reel-to-reels? Sure. You know? Um, so they developed a, a way of being able to really compartmentalize and package you know, video production. And so, so all that to say that, you know, the TV stations, they were, they were bringing in some of this equipment, but they were looking at, looking at their business model and they were saying, you know what, we're, we, may, we, can, we can sell airtime. Mm. Let's just sell airtime 
and let's try to back away from all this production because that's crew and equipment and 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 time and, and complexity that maybe we don't need. So we can push that off onto the clients. So that that's where you really saw the evolution of uh, production companies and advertising agencies and that were just stepping into that uh, to you know creating their their production resources. And so during that period of time, the church Grove Avenue found itself in this position of having to produce their own program, mm. and they didn't, they didn't know how to do that. Now here's the dilemma: if you're a church and you're in the 1970s and you're looking for a somebody to be what we would call today a media pastor or a media director, where are you going to find them? The schools that were teaching on this might have been Columbia, New York, or maybe it was uh, maybe it was uh, you go to UCLA or you go somewhere out in California or whatever. But there weren't many schools that taught. Oops, I'm hitting the microphone here. That that that, that taught um, how to do this. And so, uh, and it, well, let me say that they were there, but there weren't too many of those graduates that were looking to go to a church to do production. Right. Right. So they didn't really have anybody to do it, and it was a real dilemma for the church. And so um, Dr. Warner came to me and asked me if I would help out, and I just flatly told him no. Mm. Um, I couldn't do it. And then he came back a few months later and just said, you know, please, 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 because um, they were pretty much on notice at the station that if they didn't improve the broadcast, you know, they couldn't, they, they, they couldn't continue. I mean, it just, it, was just, it just wasn't happening. So I agreed to come in and consult. So um, we set it up that no matter where I was in the world, for I did this for almost 10 years, wherever I was in the world, uh, I'd, you know, if I was in California doing a project, I'd take the red eye back so I could be at Grove Avenue Baptist Church on Sunday morning to direct that program. Mm. So uh, I did re-engineered all the equipment there, brought in uh, professionals to help do this that I could bring in from the secular world that I was working with and and so um, I did that and, and, and kept that going for them. But here's where the religion degree comes in. After doing that and sort of having this secular career and then having this career working in the, at the church, I began to realize that as exciting as some of these uh, adventures that I was having in production were, I didn't think a lot of the things that I was working on in the secular world had a lot of eternal value. Mm. And I felt like what I was doing at the church did. Um, and so, but there was a, the lament there was that, well, I'm going from some large scale things to something that's important, but it's smaller, you know, can I give that up? And, uh, but I, but I felt like at that point, uh, I felt the lot God's calling me to say, yeah, you know, you can do this. And, uh, I think I was the right person at the right time. And I don't say that to be presumptuous, but um, I, I, I think it, it Grove at that time in its history with that broadcast that, and I used to say this to my family, friends, Vander Walter said, you could have got hired anybody to come in here and produce and direct maybe people better than me for sure. I mean, they're, they're, they're better directors than I am. They're better people that could, there are other people that could do this, you know, but the reality of it was I had some history in the church. My family had some history in the church. And I had I had enough roots in there that that's what was going to be needed. You needed not just someone to do the technology, but somebody that could also work with volunteers within the church structure and somebody that could also handle the committees and, and, and navigate stewardship and, you know, somebody that could be, could really shepherd the ministry. 
And uh, so that's what I did. And uh, uh, Dr. Warner did a really uh, lousy thing to me. He, uh, he, re he resigned after I'd been doing this for a few years, and that left the ministry kind of in my lap. And, uh, and so uh, I had to make a decision. Am I going to really shepherd this ministry, or am I going to step away? And so I stepped up and stepped into the ministry. The next pastor that came in, uh, approached me and said, you know, you're obviously, you know, here and we would like you to be more here. You've been consulting. Let's make you part of the staff. Mm. And so he did. And we expanded the ministry at this point. This is where you begin to see the internet and we had printing operations and other communications. So that, so the ministry that I did just, just expanded greatly. And, uh, so I, I was managing that. And then that's where I felt that God, God saying, you know, this is you're where you're supposed to be. You had some, you had some great, great things I'll let you do over the years, but now this is where you need to be. And so uh, I became uh, ordained and then went into the ministry. What year was that? Uh, my goodness, that's uh, let me think. It was nineteen ninety one or ninety two. Okay, I think somewhere in that range. So you were. You were in your 30s. Or was in my 30s. Yeah. And that's what you've been doing ever since. Uh, what I've been doing ever since, exactly. Wow. And it, it um, but it, you know, the, the funny thing is, is that I think, the, I think there is the perception. I think there's a perception in the world that if you become a Christian, that you're going to give up all the fun stuff. Um, and I think that, puts the brakes on some people wanting to get too, too close to, to, uh, uh, to, to faith, real faith. And, uh, I've seen that in my own family. Um, for me, I felt that going from the secular projects that I was doing to working at the church, kind of a similar feeling. It was, it was like, oh, I'm not, I'm not really going to do this because I'm I'm really not going to be not going to be happy. But it, 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 at the end, it comes down to obedience. It was really trusting mm -hmm. God and saying, "Okay, I really feel that God is leading me in this. I think He has prepared me in some respects for this, not just because of the experience that I could bring from the production and the experiences of working with so many great uh, producers and other directors over the years, but um, that religion thing, you know, kept." You know, I could I could tap into that and and then uh, and continue studying that, and so uh, so it brought the just like the EMS stuff I did earlier ended up going into the production work. Yeah. Religion ended up going into the work that I would ultimately do and be called to do, and so um, there are interesting overlaps. I can now look back and see how things all kind of wove together, as as God says, all things work together for those who love the Lord, as the Apostle Paul said. Um, but what I was going to say is that uh, I had this feeling that it, it, I wouldn't have this adventure that I had been having secularly with God, but yet the adventure I have with God was so much more, but I couldn't see it. Yeah. But I just had to trust that it was going to be there, and it was. You know, I have to say that um, uh, a lot of the things that I got to do in the secular world, when I look at what uh, God has allowed me to do in, in, in Christian communications, it's... Um, no, no less diminished. Some of my great greatest adventures and experiences, and have been um, been in the service of the Lord, doing things that um, I didn't think I would ever do. 
Israel is one of those. Yeah, I was about to transition to Israel. So how did you first uh, become engaged or form a relationship with Israel? And when we say Israel, do we mean the people of Israel? Do we mean the Israeli government? Do we mean all of it? I think I think it's the it is all of it. It, it ended up engaging in almost every level. Um, but how it started uh, again is, is these overlaps. It almost seems like there were certain parts of my life that were prequels for what was going to happen. And uh, I mentioned EMS. I mentioned the religion degree. But the um, the thing that I that I look back and and realize was that uh, and growing up here in Richmond, there's a very strong um, Jewish history here in Richmond. Uh, actually, amazing. Most people are not aware of it. Uh, there's a large Jewish community here. Uh, I think people are somewhat aware of that, especially as it's grown more in recent years, and a little more open and a little more public than it has been in recent years. But uh, when you know going to collegiate, I had friends that were Jewish, and I went to synagogue. Mm. You know, and I and I just thought. You guys do church funny, you know? <laughs> so, um, but I think that um, the thing I did when I was in secular production, again, as a kind of prequel for what I would ultimately be involved in, is that um, because I was doing production and I had the equipment and I had a, I actually had a studio here in, in Richmond at one point that, I, that we had put together with a group of investors. And I was approached by people that were working on the Spielberg project to document Holocaust uh, testimonies. Oh wow! And so uh, we we offered up our facilities. I videotaped uh, uh, the interviews that were being done with uh, Holocaust survivors as part of the Spielberg project. Uh, this, of course, all followed the Schindler's List when that movie came out. That triggered um, something within the uh, in the Jewish world. And let me just park there for a second. Um, the interesting thing when we look at what happened to the Jewish people during that uh, period of what we would generally refer to as the World War II period, um, uh, a lot of what happened to them they didn't talk about. You know, you mentioned that you had conversations, you know, with your father and interviews and things like that, and you've been able to talk to you. I've talked to my mom about some of her family history and her young life and that kind of thing, and I recorded it. But um, a lot of Holocaust survivors that, that came out of that, they either didn't want to talk about it, they didn't know how to talk about it, and they didn't necessarily share it with their children. When they get older, there's something about getting older, you tell your grandchildren things that you don't necessarily tell your children. And so um, when Spielberg made uh, Schindler's List and it became a phenomenon, um, and it had, and it wasn't the only film that had actually been produced on on the Holocaust, but but uh, uh, but it was probably the biggest. It was a pivotal moment. It was probably was one of those you know major major uh, uh, movies that got people's attention. And and uh, there was a it was happening at a, at a time where Holocaust survivors reaching a certain age where they were they were talking. It was coming out. They were going to tell their grandkids. They so. There was a lot that was sort of suppressed for decades that was now being exposed, and and so um, that's important to note because you, you you know as we get some distance away from you say well why would you talk about it you know uh, why why didn't we know this stuff earlier so we were finding this out in the eighties and so I I videotaped a lot of those uh, uh, testimonies and it was very moving um, I was very uh, touched by that and um, uh, affected by that. And then um, 
there was a desire to build a Holocaust museum here by a really good friend of mine, Jay Ibsen. Mm. Uh, he came into our studios and said, I, it was funny, we were videotaped for the Spielberg Project. We turned right around and interviewed the same people for stuff that was going to go in the, in the Virginia Holocaust Museum. And so we did that, and, and uh, we loaned our production facilities towards some of that work and um, to get that established. Um, because I will, just so people understand, a lot of Holocaust survivors came to Richmond, Virginia. We have a lot of Holocaust survivors in Richmond. Why is that? Because there were really significant businesses here that are iconic businesses that most Virginians would know, Tallheimers. Mm-hmm. Okay, major department store. They were they were helping to bring Jews here, uh, essentially that were refugees that coming out of Europe, bring them here, teach them English, if they needed to teach English. They would house them, of course. They would put them to work in their stores, you know. And this was a, this was a way of trying to you know rescue them. And one of the other things that they did uh, is they went into a local cemetery. Um, uh, Forest Lawn Cemetery bought a big piece of land and put a monument to the Holocaust, one of the first in North, North America, and maybe the, one of the first in the, in the whole world. And it's known as a Mecca Shalom now. So it's a, uh, and they do uh, every every year, they do services there uh, um, on the anniversary of Kristallnacht. So the point of all that is, is that here's all this ha- activity happening in Richmond. And again, like I mentioned earlier, this precursor to the future. So I'm doing that. Now I'm not, and then, you know, you do that, and then it's kind of done, and you move on to the next project. And and, uh, and so uh, now you move forward a few more years in, in my lifetime line, and, and uh, I'm in this Christian broadcasting setting, and uh, I'm working with other Christian broadcasters through an organization known as the National Religious Broadcasters. Uh, uh, which was which is in in Washington D.C. as a kind of association of Christian communicators, and uh, we had an invitation to go to Israel to film, mm. and uh, so I said to the pastor who was then the pastor, we should go and film a, um, in Israel, do a like a travel log or something. I wasn't sure what else to do, and so we went and we filmed it and uh, put it together, edited it, and uh, it was one of the most popular broadcasts we ever made, and so. We said, well, it's kind of ridiculous to uh, do this and create all this interest in Israel and not go back again. So we had, we set up a tour, and that's really uh, that was back in 1995, and that's really when my wife and I began conducting tours to Israel. Mm. So we would we didn't know it then, but we you know we were now moving into doing tours of Israel and uh, taking people there and and taking our cameras there and filming. So we did that, and um, now that pastor, uh, he left after a few years, and uh, the pastor that followed him, so we, there was a couple-year hiatus, but then uh, the pastor that followed him, we were saying, hey, you know, um, you're new, and if you want to get a lot of people watching you, and we have different platforms that we can get this to if we go back to Israel and we film, and he wasn't. Sure, he wanted to do that at first, but then eventually he said, yeah, let's do that. Yeah, you know, and so we took him over. And so we did uh, uh, similarly what we'd done earlier. We videotaped uh, um, kind of like a travelogue of Israel, his experiences and impressions of Israel. He cried through most of it Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Um, because he was so affected by it. And then then we, same thing. We said, well, let's go back. A lot of people are watching this. They want to go back. So we went back. And, and, and went back, I think, 
at this point, we had, you know, we had uh, a couple of starts with Israel, then a little break, and then a couple of starts with Israel. But when we went back in with this uh, pastor, the, this new pastor, um, it was, at that point, it was, that was it. In other words, there was, there was like, you're in Israel. And we really felt the leadership of the Lord saying, you're in Israel. This is, you can do this. You're here. In other words, so from that point on, it was like, we continue to, uh, we're going tours every year, boom, tours every year. We began taking um, Christian leaders that we were working with in, in Christian broadcasting, um, denominational leaders. We would take denominational leaders. Um, so, um, and here's the crazy thing. We actually <clears throat> uh, were invited, <clears throat> excuse me, were invited to attend a, um, every year in Jerusalem, they have a day of remembrance for the Holocaust. It's known that, that now we say Holocaust, the Jews refer to the Holocaust as the Shoah. So uh, you have a ceremony that's on the evening, Erev, Yom, day of uh, the Holocaust or remembrance. So um, Erev, Yom HaShoah, uh, we have every year in Israel and they have a ceremony. They have a, a memorial service for all of those who perish in the Holocaust. And they, it's that you have your all your government leaders there, you know, special, I mean, foreign dignitaries, everything. big ceremony, um, very limited on who can get in because <clears throat> who can fit in. Uh, a lot of Holocaust survivors gather, of course. And so um, we were, I was invited to be able to go to that. And I'm sitting there in the audience as a special guest of Yad Vashem uh, from the National Just Broadcasters because I was in NRB then. And uh, it, uh the conviction hit me that this program needs to be seen by the whole world. People need to, people are denying this happened or minimizing what happened. And I think people need to know about it. And, 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 I, and I almost felt like at that moment, those earlier experiences, everything, you know, those interviews from earlier and the testimonies or whatever, it's like everything just came flooding in. And I just realized that, oh my gosh, you know, this, we need to do something about this. And so uh, I think that's really where my Israel activism came in. Mm. Um, so I approached uh, my host at Yad Vashem and said, I asked them a question. I said, is this program seen anywhere outside of the state of Israel? And they said, no, it's broadcast throughout the state of Israel. Said, Excuse me, do you, do you broadcast this thing anywhere else? Does it go to any other country anywhere? anywhere? No, just we broadcast the state of Israel. I went... Okay, well, I think we can change that. But they didn't really understand what I meant. And so I, I left there and uh, left Jerusalem and come back to the States. And I'm, and I'm, I'm still concerned about it. So I, I try to call, but I don't know who to call. So I'm calling blindly into, into Yad Vashem trying to, and I should point out Yad Vashem is the World Holocaust Memorial and Education Center in, in, on the Mount of Remembrance in Jerusalem. That's where these ceremonies are held. And so I called back in and, and tried to get somebody to talk to somebody about what, what could we do to get this program essentially exported. And um, several months went by. We have another NRB convention in Nashville. <clears throat> and I'm at the Israel Ministry of Tourism booth, which I would typically frequent. And, um, and so... Uh, I just remember there was, I don't know who it was, but I just remember one of the Israelis that was there uh, manning the booth said, there's somebody from Yad Vashem looking for you. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so I, 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 they said, maybe wait here and they'll, they'll come back. And so I waited there and waited. 
finally this little woman showed up, this little short, petite, uh, blonde-haired woman who was actually uh, working for the Christian desk at Yad Vashem, who was a, uh, she was uh, from Finland, Mm. Um, brilliant, brilliant woman, Um, spoke seven languages, um, was working as the only Christian in an all-Jewish organization, and, uh, and a very venerable one at that. And uh, she said to me, she said, what did you mean by, you know, you want to do something with our, our ceremony, you know, the, and it's our program. And I said, well, I think the whole world needs to see it. And so um, she said, well, how would we do that? And so I said, well, I'll tell you what. I said, I've taken the leadership of NRB to Israel. I think we go find them right now here at the convention. And we sit down for a few minutes and we talk about how we can do this because this program can be taken and we can bring it into the United States and we can partner with Christian broadcasters and we can push this thing out. Now here, there are a lot of questions about this, like how is all the logistics of it? And so, uh, so we, we had our meeting and again, God had already worked it out ahead of time because I'd already taken these people to Israel. I didn't have to, you know, they knew who I was and they, they understood, you know, uh, our relationship with Israel at that point. And so uh, we sat down and we made a deal that we were going to do this. We weren't, we weren't charging Yad Vashem anything, but we would get airtime initially on the, in, the NRB, in the NRB TV network, which was a new network at the time. And so, uh, but the challenge was, now how do we do this? It's all in Hebrew. How do we get it translated? Mm. How do we even deal with the graphics, you know, the supers? How do we, do, how do we get clean feeds off the cameras? How do, we, how do we reconstruct this thing so that we can package it for a standard broadcast in the United States or elsewhere. And so we decided that we would do it the first year we would do it. We wouldn't tell anybody. It would just be done as a, almost as a secret. We, we do the production, we go through the process, we'd figure out all these things and we would air it as a trial. And, uh, that way, if we were promoting it, you know, we didn't want to create any expectation because we didn't know what we would come out with because we had to, we had to, produce opens and closes. We had to, you know, you can't just throw somebody into some, a program like that. We had to create a, essentially a whole new program and we had to do it when we did it for free. I mean, we're, we're, we're we decided we're going to, we're going to fund this through our ministry and, and uh, we're going to, we're going to cover the cost to do the production. So we, we did it uh, and NRB aired it. And uh, it was interesting. NRB aired it with very little promotion. I mean, toward the end, it was like, yeah, this is coming up, but I mean, very little pre-promotion. And um, they decided to do a rating during the, its airing, uh, which they had not, they don't typically do. They wanted to get a, uh, it just happened to be they were trying to get a measure of viewers for their, for their uh, network. And they got over 400,000 views. Wow. Uh, which for a cable network was pretty, pretty impressive for that program. So we knew we had something. That was pure word of mouth, right? Yeah, pretty much. And uh, so we, uh, so we had, uh, so we knew we had something. And so uh, every year since we started doing it, uh, we've been doing this now for ten years, um, and uh, it's been. Uh, what we did was we started with the NRB TV network, and then the second year I. At, the, I talked to the NRB execs and I said, uh, can we share this with other Christian networks? Because because NRB kind of had it as exclusive to start with. 
I said, this, obviously, we want to get this out as far as we can. So we shared it with NRB members, and we started bringing in other networks. And at one point, we had close to 90 networks around the world mm. carrying it. Wow. So the very first time that the ceremony for the Holocaust was ever carried outside of the state of Israel, God put me in a position to be able to do that. That's amazing. It's amazing. So, so, but but, but I, I also knew something when, when I did this. So I also knew that. I knew that God had orchestrated this, so I have to give him the credit for it. So I know he orchestrated it, and he was the one that made it happen. Um, but I also knew, almost kind of like what I did, it was almost a similar feeling I had when I went from secular to Christian television. I almost felt like I'm moving, in, I'm moving into something now that I'm not going to, there's no retreat from. Um, and so the way I kind of expressed it to people was it's like, uh, when it came to Israel, I've been dating this girl for a while. I do this program. I'm going to be married to her. I'm going to put the ring on. And that's really what happened. I think from the point of doing that program, um, at that point I became an advocate for Israel. I'm working with the American Israel public affairs committee. I'm working with, um, I'm working with, uh, Yad Vashem, um, I'm working with um, other pro-Israel organizations, major pro-Israel organizations. Um, so it 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 was a it was a it was a major change. The Israeli government they named me a goodwill ambassador um, for the state of Israel. So I mean it's it's a that changed everything, and so that put me on a course of of relationship with Israel and and the Jewish people uh, here in the United States and and. And, over, and in Israel, overseas. So that's that's um, that's how I ended up in Israel. So uh, for perspective, I've, I've done a little bit of research in the last 24 hours. There's a stat uh, that really hit me hard. There are 15 million Jews worldwide, roughly. Uh, about 7 million in the state of Israel and about 6 million in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the relation, that just like, blew my doors off that the American relationship with Israel has to be extremely important. And I think that means to at least our institutions, if not uh, the entirety of the American populace. Yeah, we were watching that in Israel. I think it was in recent years that the number of uh, Jews living in Israel uh, matched the number of the Holocaust. And that's what, that's what, that's what um, I think that's what, a lot of people were looking for, you know, because, you know, coming out of the Holocaust, um, the Jews felt, many of them felt that the best revenge was to have, to get married and have children. Mm. You know, I lost my family. I'm going to have a family. I'm going to name them after my family who perished. In other words, the idea of that, you know, we're, we're, we're going to, we're going to come back. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to reemerge. We're going to come back strong. And so, you know, when, when, when Israel hit the 6 million mark, there was, there was some attention like we've now achieved here in our own nation, in our own land, what we lost, yeah. you know? Yeah. So there was, there was, there was, there was, that's an interesting thing. Uh, it was something that was of, 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 of great interest to the Jewish people. But, you know, you mentioned the number, it is interesting between the United States and Israel, that's where you see the, the two biggest populations of, of Jews. And that also links, but you, you see the linkage anyway between 
the United States and Israel, um, which has been there. It's actually, it's it's part of the the U.S. from the very, very early, early stages of our founding, actually. Uh, This idea that, you know, Israel needs to exist. And even before there was an Israel, um, at least a renewed Israel, a nation back in the land. But, um, yeah, the, the... the thing that does that makes us a target, because the people who hate Israel, hate the Jews in Israel, hate the Jews in the U.S. The, so the anti-Semitism that you see, in perhaps in the nations around, or the, even the conflict now with the Palestinians, um, the you know you see this in the United States. You see you, you see anti anti um, Jewish sentiments, anti-Semitism in in the United States. So so in some one respect, you can say we have this amazing linkage between. Uh, the uh, America, because of the Jewish populations we have in America, and and also uh, you see support from the evangelical churches, and then you have uh, this great population of Jews that are in Israel, and and that that's a blessing in one in, in, in one respect, but in the other respect that does tend to bring a lot of pressure and attention, you know, because it, the enemies of Israel look at the United States, they look at Israel as actually being the they call it the little Satan. That's the small country that we want to destroy the Jewish people. The United States is the great Satan. We're without it, without the United States. If we could get the, the United States out of play, mm. Israel would not have an ally. Yeah, that uh, that makes a lot of sense. All right, so uh, let's talk about your experience over the last couple of weeks uh, with the the horrible attack that commenced on October seventh and lasted days uh, after the seventh. Uh, just Run me through your sure. experience with that. Well, uh, it was so it was such a contrast, and I'm sure it was a contrast for many of the Jews as well. I mean, one of the things that I think that I thank God for in in this sort of walk, as I mentioned, with Israel over the last couple of decades now, uh, almost thirty years really in Israel, coming up on that, um, we've developed many many friendships in the land. I mean, just people that. We, we know their parents and we know their children, you know, their, their children. And we know, you know, we're getting into generational relationships now. Um, and, and because working in, the, in advocacy in Washington and with Jewish people, I mean, one of the things that I always appreciated was when you were in the company of the Jewish community and, and you were part of it. You know, in other words, it was, you weren't, we weren't outsiders anymore. We were, we were, we sort of knew what they were thinking and what they were feeling, and they didn't talk to us differently. Because oh, but I can't, I got to be careful what I say to you because you're over here, you're on that, you're on this team. Yeah. And um, so I think that uh, we we feel very connected to Israel. So we were joyful. We were joyful in the days leading up to the attack because we were in a feast of Israel. We're in the feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot. Um, and we know that at the end of the feast, you're going to have the joy of the Torah. You're going to have the Simcha Torah, where you have the uh, the Torah scrolls. You go back and you start your systematic reading of the uh, of the Torah, the uh, the Torah portion or the parshas that you read, because the Jews will religi- religiously observant Jews will read through the Torah every year, and it is portioned out. And so that you, you're the day to sort of reset and rebegin that is is in the at the end of Sukkot. So we're, and we had here, we had a, 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 a local gathering for to celebrate Sukkot. And then we had our, our Shabbat that we do on Fridays now at Berea. And we do this other churches that come. We have a kind of community Sabbath gathering where we talk about Israel. And we had a just an amazing, amazing 
happy time. And so uh, I remember going to bed on the Shabbat on the Friday night um, and just getting up the next morning uh, very early. Um, I probably could have slept in, but I just, for some reason, I got up early. And um, I uh, was in prayer, morning prayers, and uh, just thanking God for the, um, the blessing of uh, the last few days and looking forward to think we, things we were going to be doing in Israel in the days ahead and um, actually taking another trip into Israel. And then uh, my phone started blowing up and, uh, and I realized that uh, everything had changed. And so I'm, I'm now I'm talking to friends that are in bomb shelters. Mm. I'm talking to others that can't find people. I have people that I knew in some of these border areas that we were trying to locate. And, 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 and it was like the 9-11 moment. If you got to go back to 9-11, a lot of people... A lot of people, a lot of young people now that don't know this. I mean, you know, this is the thing. 9-11 being over 20 years ago. It's it's sort of, uh, I don't think we should let that memory fade. Um, but there are a lot of people that probably would listen to this younger. If you're younger people that, you know, they they weren't around at 9-11. They weren't born or they weren't aware of what it was like. But I, I remember that September morning. I remember how beautiful and clear it was. It's an amazing day. It was just like you got up, and I just remember the same same kind of feeling. It was like I got up, and it's a beautiful day, and I'm feeling good. I'm going to get in my car. I'm going to drive up to the church, and I'm going to go to work, and it's a, it's a lighter day, and you know, it's it was it was just a good day. And then you're just you know you're 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 driving in, and and then you get there, and then it's like the news starts coming in, and I had a media suite there. I'm I'm pulling up monitors, watching different news feeds, and I'm just sitting there watching. It's like I'm watching the world fall apart. That's what it felt like, right. you know, um, because I, I, the moment for me also really, really frightened me was not when the twin towers were hit. You kind of, you're still like, what is that, you know? But when the Pentagon was hit, and I remember watching that on this on the screen, it was like, oh my gosh! In other words, the first plane hits is like, was that an accident? Second plane hits, no, that's not an accident. Then one hits the Pentagon, then you kind of go, oh my gosh, what what is happening? You yeah. Know? And the sense of like just just shock, um, not knowing how to respond to it, not knowing what to do. And so on October 7, it was the same feeling. It was mm. like, you know, you came out of this, oh, you know, we've had the feast and we've had this great this uh, great gathering here at the Berea locally. And then the next morning you get up and it's like, it's like the same thing. It's like, bang, you know, where is everybody? What's happening? What's going on? You know, what is our response? How do we respond to this? Are you okay? Let's call so and so. Let's, you know, let's text and check on our friend here or there, or, or calls would be coming to us. Same thing. And you're, and it was just this moment of like, what is happening? And how do we even process this? And so, um, but for you, and and to compare it to nine eleven, it would it would be like some a New Yorker, who was maybe blocks away from the towers exactly. when it happened. That's the kind of impact October seventh had on you, I imagine. Exactly, and and I was in a um, because of my work with Israel, and uh, I, it was through the American Israel Public Affairs Committee. They had arranged uh, a a call with the uh, with Israel, so that was uh, the very next day on Sunday, 
And uh, it was right after church services, so I was appreciative of the timing of it. But we were on the phone with uh, uh, Michael Herzog, who's the U.S. ambassador, uh, the Israeli ambassador to the U.S. He's also the brother of the president of Israel. And uh, and he and he said it. I mean, he said, and I quote, uh, let's see, I'm going to get the quote exactly right. He said, quote, this has pierced the soul of the nation, end quote. Uh, meaning the nation of Israel, of course. And then he went on to say that this is our 9-11. And um, he said that, um, you know, that we're dealing with a situation, uh, we're responding, uh, but this is our 9-11. And uh, he said, and I think this is important to note, that just as 9-11, the world sort of stood back because the United States had been hit and hit horribly really there's great tragedy that was like you, you had the sense that people were going to step back and say okay us we're not you know we're do what you have to do here you know and so um what the, the ambassador said is he said was uh you know the world's going to have to step back and let us do what we have to do and uh, that means we're going to go in and we're going to put this thing down we're not going to you know get shot at and then you know try to fire back on a limited basis and and then this hopefully this thing will quiet down and, and we'll wait and then there'll be another round and there'll be another round and there'll be another round no we're, we're tired of this we've been, we've been dealing with this since 2005 and this was uh, a, a very aggressive attack which i have more details on i can give you but the um but it was the it was the sense that we have to do something but they also and it was i say they the ambassador and there were several others that were on the call and the uh the immediate concern was that Israel was going to have to do something that it had never really wanted to do. Um, they wanted, they were going to change their rules of engagement. Uh, Israel went above and beyond what the, what the Geneva convention would typically give a military or understand or appreciate that a military had to do and taking out an enemy. Uh, Israel would go above and beyond because they would, they would, uh, they would try to avoid, um, take any collateral damage, even at the cost of their lives of their own soldiers. Um, in fact, there was uh, Ron Dermer, who was the previous uh, ambassador to the United States um, uh, uh, under Netanyahu. Um, he said on, on, a, on an interview, and I believe it was with CNN, he said that the IDF, the Israel Defense Force, was the most humane uh, army on earth. And, uh, and, uh, it was a firestorm that erupted of people who said, how can you say that? That's horrible. How, oh, you take it back. And he said, no, I'm not taking it back. And he would go on subsequent interviews and say, I'm not taking it back. He says, we risk our lives trying to make sure that we just get the bad guys. We're trying really, really, really hard and, and taking great risks to do that. And uh, he said, if you had... Your, your city's bombed, you know, rocketed attacks or whatever, or your people killed or abducted or whatever, you know, your response would be a lot different than what we're doing. So, uh, or maybe it wouldn't these days, I don't know. But, but, but the point is, is that, uh, as he was saying, yeah, we, we go to great, great effort to do that. So that was what's happened here since this attack is Israel saying, okay, this is still a core value, but we recognize that the kind of action that we have to take there's likely to be collateral damage because our enemy is going to hide behind women and children. Um, so 
we're at a point where we don't want to be, but we know if we have to go in and, and really stamp out this threat with Hamas once and for all, uh, our rules of engagement are going to change. So instead of being uh, Geneva Plus, it's going to be just we're going to standard rules of war. Um, and the other thing was, and I should add, they didn't. One of the things that's kept them out of Gaza over the years has been the fact they don't want to risk their own soldiers because they know a ground offensive is is, and we know this. You know this from as, from your, as a military officer. You you know ground offensive. If you think about recent conflicts that we've had in the Middle East, you know you you want that air cover. You want the you want to achieve everything you can before you send those troops in because when you send the troops in, that's where you get your casualties. If you put them on the battlefield, if you haven't uh, done everything you can to uh, uh, weaken your enemy on the battlefield, so Israel knew that now we're facing we're facing this dilemma. And and the other thing was, and this was the conversation I, I wanted to get to, was that they understood fundamentally that the world will come against them on this. In other words, um, the, Israel knows throughout its history, whenever Israel's attacked, um, even if there is some initial sympathy for Israel, like, oh, that's terrible, oh, we're sorry, um, they know that when they retaliate, uh, about the time they start winning is when the rest of the world says stop. So, you know, it's like, all right, as soon as Israel has the upper hand, please stop. So the, war, the pressure comes. And what, and what in this call that I was on that with the ambassador was saying, was just saying, we're not going to stop this time. Mm. Okay? You're, the world, like with 9-11 with you, step, they step back. You're going to have to step back. But we recognize, and again, this is something that some of our colleagues in Washington uh, working in APAC were saying, was that, look, we need to understand there's a storm coming. Because if Israel does change its rules of engagement, if Israel does go in, if Israel is does put this down the way they need to, the world is gonna it's just gonna be a storm of of pressure, poor protest, or whatever, to uh, push them back. And we're seeing that. We're seeing that already. Yeah. Um, Israel is going in, and uh, now the world's making Israel the aggressor, and um, which it is not. And one of the things that I think is very difficult um, for most Americans to understand, uh, and I see this even even within the what I would consider to be uh, evangelical communities that are pro-Israel, they understand the biblical significance of Israel. They understand that um, the uh, what what Israel really means um, in in the in the what I would call the plan of God. Um, they also don't necessarily understand all nature of all the conflict. So there's a lot of fundamentals I feel like I've had to try to cover and talk about in recent days, trying to help people understand, you know, what is it? What is Hamas? And what is the Palestinian Islamic Jihad? What is, who's the Hezbollah? And what, what are they really finding about it? What is the objection? Who are the Palestinians? And what, you know, it, so you bring back some of these things, like how do we understand this struggle anyway? Um, and then, and then there's fundamentally, what is it? Um, because there's there's also underpinnings and ideology that underpins all of this that is driving the conflict as well. So it's a very, very, very complex situation, which is hard to understand. And uh, unfortunately, this doesn't get articulated through a lot of the churches. It doesn't get articulated through a lot of these communities the way it needs to. Uh, people are making this effort, or a lot of 
organizations in the United States that are trying to, pro-Israel organizations, some of which I'm on their boards, are trying to communicate. Please understand what, what's happening in the Middle East and, uh, and, 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 and why Israel has to do what it has to do. And, and we're going to have to stand with Israel. And it may be, the, may be harder to stand with Israel in days ahead than it has been. So, um, so yeah, this is an extraordinary, extraordinary time that we live in. No question about it. You've lost friends. My friends' children are in the, been called up in the military. Um, people that I have walked with, that I knew, um, have been killed. Uh, people, of, uh, I have pictures on my phone of children playing on playgrounds in uh, uh, Kibbutz Narim that are dead. Um, so, yes, it makes it, 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 it makes it very real. Um, it's as personal as it can be for you. I, I, I think so. Uh, I'm praying that there are some of the uh, uh, children that I know um, who have been called up. Uh, I pray that, um, I pray that, I just pray that, I know there are going to be casualties on the, on the Israeli side. I just pray that they're minimal. Um, but uh, Israel is doing something right now, uh, not to give away any secrets, because the news media has been pretty much on this entire uh, event. Um, but the, uh, the Israelis are, are, the first thing they did is they wanted to close that border. And uh, when we were talking with the ambassador, he said the border, the border would be closed by Sunday night. So the very next day, they would have that border sealed. The Israelis now have more than 200,000 troops on the border. So they, they, are, they are trying to secure and enforce. But they are conducting uh, airstrikes, which is smart. And they're doing everything they can to take out Hamas targets. Uh, this is more aggressive than they've been in the past in that respect. And they also have intelligence that they've garnered from captured terrorists that are helping to identify targets. Mm. And so they're, so they are not going in yet. And some of that, there are some objectives there from a military. You, 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 from your background, you can appreciate, uh, simply rushing in is not necessarily the smart play here. They don't have to, they don't have to, and uh, your enemy gets, if your enemy doesn't know when you're coming in, a certain amount of fatigue sets in if you're trying to man a post. And, uh, and, and Hamas knows that ultimately they can't win. That's one of the reasons why they really have to try to get the world on their side and, and, and get this pressure on Israel to back off because from a military perspective, they cannot win. I mean, Israel can deal with this, but they, but they, they can't win. Uh, so... They got to try to stop them any way they can. So they're gonna they're gonna try to leverage any kind of you know. There was the incident that happened. I think that a lot of people were talking about in the news. But the hospital that got hit with a rocket. Well, there's video uh, of that rocket being launched, and you see it go up and come right back down. And it was their own rocket that hit hit it. Of course, what I don't think people realize is that in a lot of these rocket attacks through the years that uh, that have been launched. Uh, out of the Gaza toward uh, Israel, a lot of those actually do fall back on them because they're not they're not missiles. You have rockets, and I think of rockets like when I was a kid and had bottle rockets. You know, you yeah. you try you can try to aim it at something, but good luck with that, right? You just kind of goes in the general area, and you get it within a mile of where you're. Yeah, exactly. 
So, um, so it, so, so the, uh, uh, then you have the missiles and they don't really have missiles. Um, I'm not saying we don't know for sure if they don't have missiles. There have been missile launches, but we've seen missiles from the north. We think in the Hezbollah and Lebanon and Syria, there, there you'd have more guided weapons, and that's a bigger concern. Direct uh, assistance from Iran, exactly. clearly, and and Russia, exactly. And and but now we should point out that the, uh, the the one of the banks for monies that get transferred to a lot of these. Uh, terrorist entities that goes through Qatar. Mm. So, you know, there, there are some actors, there's some bad actors in places that are supposed to be, you know, our friends and... Or at least neutral. Or neutral. Yeah. And so, yeah, so that's the thing we have to understand. But yeah, we, this is totally financed by Iran. Um, the military uh, attack, which I can take apart for you, I got a briefing from uh, one of Israel's leading... Um, military strategists and uh, terror experts um, who, in another briefing, um, broke out the, the details of the attack um, and some of the things that, uh, that were failures, because you know, there were intelligence failures in this. Um, but that's, that's something that I'm sure we'll get dissected in the days ahead. It was like 9-11, same thing. It was sort of like, did we get warned where there were warnings? There were some people that were saying this is a possibility, this could happen, This, you know, different scenarios being played out. The Trade Center had been attacked before. They tried to blow it up. I mean, there were a lot of, there, were, there was, you know, you can go back sort of after the fact and look at what might have been intelligence failures. But the reality, and that'll happen in Israel. It's already happening. We already know what some of those intelligence failures were, but that's not the concern right now. The concern right now is let's make sure that anything that went wrong that we that we're dealing with it, um, but also looking ahead in the future, how can we make sure that we don't let those kinds of things happen again? But uh, but yeah, I could break down some of that if you're interested. Yeah, I'll give you a, a little break and let me talk for a minute. Um, or the. Uh, 9-11, back to 9-11, intelligence failures with us. I, I talked to a gentleman uh, who was in the intel community, military community, and he said, we knew a lot about bin Laden and those connected to him and the ways the laws were set up in our country in the late 90s going into the early 2000s. Uh, lawyers quashed it and, and would not allow that intel to be released to places it needed to be released. And if it had been... Maybe we prevent prevented something, and and you don't really know how bad something is until it actually happens. Um, and so, yeah, the the intel failure is like no, I'm sure we have other safeguards. This is not a big deal. Uh, no, nothing to see here. And I think it's representative of humans are not perfect. We're we're, we're imperfect beings, and uh, it leads to these in part to these sorts of outcomes or these events. Yeah, I w- I would love to go through the details. Um, I think. I think the thing is I've tried to understand the information that I've been trying to process about what happened um, and having the benefit of being able to talk with people who um, are in the intelligence community on this. Um, there was a over-dependence on technology. And the best way I could describe it is is that 
if in my home I put in like the most state-of-the-art security system you can get, I'll have automatic lights. I've got, I don't know, with a ring lights and ring systems, cameras around my, my perimeter. I've got all contacts on the doors and windows or whatever. And I'm sitting in my house and I'm thinking, I'm safe. I'm good. Uh, I'm going to rely on technology to protect me. That's essentially what that border fence became. Mm. Uh, they spent billions of dollars on that fence. That was not just a fence. That was a smart fence. Uh, that was a fence that, that had uh, deep underground concrete uh, foundations that were designed to prevent tunneling through. It was uh, sensors underground to detect tunneling, if any tunneling got near it. It had sensors that could determine uh, movement and this sort of no man's land. There was a big field between Gaza the Gaza border and the Israeli border. Almost like a deep... It was like a DMZ. Yeah, yeah, no man's land. A DMZ. So uh, you had uh, targeting systems that could actually fire weaponry, Mm. automated. Um, And so so you you had this amazing protective system. And so uh, in terms of troop allocations, um, there was actually... IDF bases in the south and and actually near nearby, but um, in terms of you know people on the perimeter, it, it kind of minimized what was on the perimeter, and I think that was further min- minimized by the holiday and of, of Sukkot and and the fact that it was also a Sabbath. So, you know, it, it um, uh, th- there was a point where sort of the human element of it was minimized in terms of monitoring or defensive systems. Or, or strategies, and it, and it became a reliance on on the technology. I, th- I think that's true in many other parts of the world, whether you're talking about business or government or military or basic defense, yeah. Yeah, uh, there's no substitute for, for human eyes and military presence on these borders. Now, the way these communities worked is you typically had somebody who would – would you'd have some security presence in these communities, and so you had uh, you, you, I, and I, and I don't know. There's a one man in particular um, that I don't think survived it. I'm, I'm still trying to figure out who made it and who didn't. But so you did have um, some defensive, you know, people people who had guns who could shoot back. Uh, but obviously, they were just completely overwhelmed. One of the things that I thought was interesting, and you can appreciate this from a military perspective, um, the 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 person that I that I had the privilege of being able to speak with, who I've known for a while um, as a friend, basically said that when you have a when you have a something like the border fence that Israel had, uh, that the the people behind the fence get complacent, sure, bored even, and the people that are facing it as an obstacle become innovative Mm. and they were innovative. And so what they did was those targeting systems that I mentioned earlier that could identify and potentially fire at targets, they were overrun by uh, flocks of drones Mm. that were the little handheld cheap drones that you could buy at a Best Buy. That you give a teenage kid for Christmas kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, and they used that to distract the, the detection systems. Wow. Which, really, you can think about it, it was brilliant. Yeah. 
So those, so now uh, that's being targeted, and then they race as fast as they can in motorcycles and pickup trucks to the fence. They hit the, get to the fence, they blow holes in the fence, and then they're in. Mm. At the same time, they're dropping in um, terrorists or dropping in in these ultralights, these like paragliders. Right. And so they're dropping in. And, and when they were dropping in, um, there's a photograph uh, circulating on the Internet. I've got it. Uh, there's a photograph um, of a this ultralight paraglider, whatever you want to call it, landing um, in into one of these communities, actually ahead of anything else. In other words, they were uh, if you it was a man with his child who was walking out of his house that morning, and this glider lands, and it's like, oh, who is this? Is this somebody just? Is this somebody just out doing this for fun or whatever, yeah. you know? And he took a picture of it. And then uh, the guy shot and killed him and his daughter. They had the picture from his phone. Uh, but what's amazing is, is that, uh, you know, it was like these guys are dropping in. Drones are hitting the fence. Holes are being blown through the fence. And then comes the main onslaught. So it was a, uh, it was a very well-coordinated attack. Um and it did catch those communities completely off guard. And and I mentioned they had security forces, I mean, security elements within those communities. But again, you got to think it's the holiday. People are not necessarily on alert. And um, and it's a Shabbat. And so they are, you know, they are, they are preoccupied uh, with that to some degree. And so they got overwhelmed pretty quickly. But they did fight back. I don't, I don't know if that's really been mentioned, but, in, but there were... According to the information that I've been giving, there were at least 1,500 terrorists that were killed mm. by the kibbutz communities. Um, they were overrun, of not, course. Not IDF. But before, the IDF uh, before the IDF forces could be fully engaged. So it wasn't like they didn't shoot back, but they got overrun. And, they, and, and they were, it was a massacre at a level that we've not seen since the Holocaust. More Jews died in that one day than had had died at any single day since the Holocaust. Mm. So it was, um, it was uh, huge. You know, we lost 3000 people during nine uh, 11 or we think 3000 or, or more. It's hard to exactly know the number. Um, but, uh, in this case, the, uh, uh, the loss to the Jews at this, at this point, um, you look at it as a kind of proportion it would almost be like if 9-11 had happened and we'd lost instead of losing 3,000 we'd lost 20,000 25,000 probably, probably even bigger number yeah, yeah probably a bigger number but yeah. uh, but but it it's it is it is back to what the ambassador said pierced the soul of the nation it has it it, it is it is just as 9-11 changed the United States this is going to change Israel this is this is something that's the people everyone I'm talking to this is this is going to affect the the psyche of Israel it's going to affect the uh, the people of Israel uh profoundly yeah uh so most of the casualties or all the casualties were essentially within miles of that border between Gaza and Israel uh the targets of course it's easier as we've seen with Gaza uh, you know, the, the, the communities that get the most damage are the ones closest to them. In other words, it's harder. You know, for example, the rocket attacks, they, they've not really been able to effectively hit 
Jerusalem. Um, getting into Tel Aviv is a little bit of a stretch for these rockets. But the rockets that we saw in this last um, attack uh, did get further, yeah. have been able to reach uh, Tel Aviv, have been able to reach um, into Jerusalem more effectively. I'm not saying that they've never been able to hit these targets. I'm saying they've rarely been able to hit these targets. So, And, of course, we have the Iron Dome systems that are there to try to interdict these rockets, and, and uh, they can they can effectively do that, as we've seen. But the uh, there was an attempt to overwhelm the the Iron Dome systems, and they fired more rockets in a shorter period of time than they had ever had before. So this was the biggest... Um, the biggest... Um, challenge that the Iron Dome systems had to, had, to, had to face, and they couldn't get them all down. So that we saw more damage than we've seen in the past. But it's those areas that are near the Gaza border, obviously the ones that are more affected because they're right there. They're the, they're the communities that are easiest to strike. Um, and so those, those were the focus of the attacks. I mean, you're going to attack your front line, you know, um, and in part because you, it's, it would be harder to get over those barriers and those communities to get deeper into, into, into Israel anyway. So, you, you know, your, your attack strategy or their attack strategy was obviously to hit those, those communities all along the border. I want to say there was at least 20 communities that were in, engaged. Um, but the, um, the, the, the attack, there was also, uh, you, you may have heard something in the news about the uh, music festival that was held. Yeah. Um, we have really close friends of ours that were asking us to pray for their neighbors um, who was a young couple that had gone to the music festival. They hadn't heard from them. Well, they, they were killed. Um, as we eventually found out, they found, they found them, uh, their bodies. But the, uh, the music festival, that was specifically targeted. They, they knew about this. I mean, it would be, it'd be like if I decided we're going to have a concert at the Hanover Vegetable Farm or something, and, and it's going to be, we're going to have this big concert, uh, six months from now, eight months from now, and it's going to be here, and we're going to have this great artist come in and play, and it's going to be great and big gathering or whatever. It, it, it's like that. And it's like it's like some a terrorist going looking at this and going, hey, we're going to have a lot of people in a little tight space, probably minimal security. That's going to become a prime military objective. And that was a prime military objective because they had, they had, it was going to be fish in the barrel for them, as yeah. we would say, use that expression. Yeah. So what they did there was they, uh, they, the infiltrators that got over the border, they had a team that was obviously heading for that, uh, that event. And uh, they went in dressed as uh, Israeli police. And they set up barricades. So the people that are trying to kill you you know, as you're as you're looking at any kind of crisis, you know, oh, there's a police, or oh, oh, where do I go, or where do I run, or whatever. That they were there to essentially corral you so that you could be killed in mass, and uh, and then others could be captured. I don't know if, if there's a stronger word uh, for Hamas than than evil, uh, and I don't know if this comparison is useful at all. But I, my first thought was. Um, Who's tried to eradicate through murderous ways the Jews? And it's the Nazis. I, is that comparison fair? Does that comparison help people understand what Hamas is? Because I think the world, there are exceptions on, in fringes, but Nazis are, to 99.9%, I imagine, of the world community says, yes, they were, they were evil. They were bad for humanity. Is Hamas any better? Well... 
I've thought a lot about this, and I'm, and I'm trying to, if I, later today I'm going to go work on this, so this might be a good, uh, a good, good thing. In my head, uh, I've been thinking about, I've been trying to, trying to figure out where did all this begin? How do you tell people where did all this begin? And let's take, let's take it, let's, let's unravel all the way back now. I don't have time to go through, you know, we would be here for hours trying to talk about all of, all, unraveling all of the history, but let me just put it this way. Uh, earlier this year, uh, my wife and I were standing on a mountaintop in, uh, in the West Bank um, that is known as Elon Marais. And this was where the covenant with Abraham was made. Um, and this is a t an area where tourists typically don't go because you're in the West Bank and you're in, you're in uh, areas that um, you know, you, you've got to be more watchful. Because we literally look down the mountain, you're looking into Janine, and you're looking into places where there are people that want to hurt you if they could. Um, and it really that that's that stuck with me throughout this conflict. And the idea is like, where did this start? And really, where it started is you've got to go back to covenant with Abraham. Because if you look closely at what uh, the Scripture records of that agreement of that covenant, as we would say, or agreement or promise. It was meant as a, uh, an irrevocable promise. And it included really, it was about a people that would come. You know, Abraham, I'll make you a great nation. Um, your descendants will be more innumerable than the stars. Uh, and Abraham, we're going to get, there's a land that you will be given in this promise, in this covenant. Uh, and this is irrevocable. And that's really where it begins. Because... Here's something a lot of people don't think about with Abraham. If you're familiar with the story of Abraham and Sarah, when God tells Abraham that I'm going to make you a great nation, he's a man of some wealth and some influence and some position at that time of history in that part of the world. But he had one big problem. He didn't have any heirs. Mm. <laughs> you know, he doesn't have, uh, he didn't have the blessing of having a lot of children. Um, so he doesn't have sons and daughters that he can, Say, I'm going to leave this to you, or to you too. So when God says that to you, and God, I mean, when God said that to him, and, uh, and and went through the visitors that visit Abraham, which are the angelic visitors that visit him, um, you have in the Bible narrative, you have Sarah, his 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 wife, listening, and 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 they're saying to him, and ultimately they talk to her. They say. Yeah, you're going to have a child. She's like 90 years old. Mm. So she laughs. Actually, this is why uh, her son is called Isaac. It's laughter. That's what Isaac means. It's laughter. It's like, it's like if I go up to Berea, there's a 90-year-old woman I, you know, we have, I know there. I could lean over to her and say, you're, you're going to have a child. She would look at me and, and laugh because she would say, that's insane. That's impossible. So... What I'm trying to underscore here is when you look at the covenant that is described in Genesis 15, 16, 17, when you look at uh, even what God says in Genesis 12, when you look at the narrative and the story of what happens with Abraham, you realize that he's giving, he's making a promise for a people. He's making a promise for a land, but he's also saying these, this people are going to be miraculously created. It's not like the virgin birth, the immaculate conception. It's not that, but it is, you can't argue, a miraculous birth because a, a child is going to come forth from a barren woman who's well beyond childbearing age. And that child, as we know, um, 
as uh, uh, Isaac, you know, you know, he is he is going to be through Isaac and then successively through Jacob and others that will become the nation that we now know as Israel. So I say that, unpack that, because that's really where the battle begins. Because the battle begins is that if you go from that point and march through history, and there's you see again and again and again an attempt to eliminate the Jewish people. You, you see the attempt to destroy that covenant, and, and, and you see the attempt to eliminate that people group. So you see it in one persecution and one pogrom after another, after another, after another, after another. And, and, and why is that? Because it is through the covenant people that God is going to bring his word. He's going to, if you now move forward in the timeline from Abraham to the time of Moses, now you're at a time where God says, I'm going to make you a holy nation. In other words, I'm, I'm, you're my, quote, chosen people. Now, some Jews joke about this. They say, if I could talk to God, we would say, choose somebody else. <laughs> you know, you probably heard that, yeah, you know. Yeah. And, and the idea behind it is because being that chosen people means the world will hate you. Jesus said this actually to his followers. He says it to us Christians because Christians and Jews, we have a lot in common. Because any, any people who are the people of God, the way I put it, is anybody who bows before the God of Israel, whether you're a Jew or Gentile, you will come under persecution. Jesus said, the world's going to hate you for my name's sake. They're going to hate you. And, and, and this is what, it was easy for him to say that, not only because he, because he was the Messiah, he was God, but at the same time, Jewish history, it has been one persecution or oppression after another after another because through the Jews would come God's word. God's instruction, that's what Torah means, God's instruction, would come God's um, uh, salvation through Jesus. So, so, so if the enemy of God, and we know in that, those fallen angels, uh, those, those who uh, follow Satan, you know, Satan has to destroy this covenant, has to destroy the, the children of Israel. And you saw this. You mentioned the Nazis. You saw the greatest pogrom, the greatest persecution of the Jews we've probably ever seen under the Nazi regime. Was it new? No, it wasn't new. I mean, think about it. We can go back in history. What did, what did uh, Titus do when he, when he put down the revolt in Jerusalem and the Jews were killed in that offensive? or later in Hadrian, or then you can go forward in history and look at other persecutions where you can see times where Jews were either thrown out or, or, or hundreds of thousands, even millions have been killed. So the point of it is, this is not new for the Jewish people. But the, but the under, under Nazi Germany, I think we could arguably say this was probably the greatest pogrom that was ever carried out against the Jewish people. And why? Well, if, if we look ahead... If the Jewish people can reestablish their homeland, um, in doing that, they are essentially fulfilling the words of the prophets because God told his prophets in the Old Testament, which is the Jews would refer to as the Tanakh. It's the Tanakh is the Torah. It's the it's the words of the prophets and it's the writings. So that that's the, the that's the that creates the 
what we would call the Old Testament, the Jews would refer to as the Tanakh. So it fulfills what the prophets said was going to happen, that Israel would be, again, it goes back to Abraham, it's an eternal promise. This is the prom, eternal promise. This is the promised land, that they were going to reoccupy the land, that they would be a nation again. A nation would be formed in the day, the prophet Isaiah said, that you would see the reestablishment of Israel. You would see the rebuilding of Israel. It's there, it's there not only in the words of the prophets, but even in the Psalms. And so, so as I've thought about this, I've thought about the fact that the, the anti-Semitism, which has been called the world's oldest hatred, begins all the way back with Abraham. We see it all the way through to the Nazi period where they're trying to, in the final solution, eliminate the Jews. And I believe that this is a the, the, the satanic destruction of the Jewish people was an attempt to stop, to thwart, the plan of God to reestablish the nation of Israel, mm. as he said it would. Think about it. If the Jews had been completely eliminated, the Torah scrolls burned, and there was no Israel today, then everything that we would have read in our Bible would not be true. Yeah. It wouldn't be true. Your, what the words prophet said? Mm. See, actually, the biggest argument now in our time, in our lifetime, which is kind of glorious to see this, is that if you go back in history, listen, I mentioned 70 AD, you go back to 70 AD and you see the, the Jewish revolt where uh, Titus um, is, is and his armies are, uh, are trying to put down this revolt in Judea. It wasn't called Palestine in Judea. And uh, they were losing for a while. Uh, then, of course, ultimately they, uh, they succeed and uh, it's, it's bloody and it's terrible. If you look at the church, uh, the church of Jesus Christ, the Christian faith, when you see the church being leaving Judea, which the church leaves Judea before 70 AD, so you see the, the church moving out into Turkey and moving out into an evangelism and missions going out into the world, uh, from Judea, you see that happening before the, before the revolt of 70 AD, that it would have been easy to pick up your Bible, you know, your scriptures, and say, well, it looks like God is done with the Jewish people because temples destroyed, people are wiped out, they're scattered, uh, within a few decades, Hadrian's going to come along. He's going to do an even more thorough job. He's going to even call the country uh, Palestinia instead of Judea. So we get the word Palestine from. But the point is, is that the church, this idea evolved that God is done with the Jewish people. It's done with them. That all these things that the promise, the prophets promised, they were, God obviously changed his mind or was wrong, or that, that applies to the church. There is no Israel. There's no literal Israel. There's no, there's no reestablishment of land. There isn't all these things. When you see that in Scripture, it, God really meant the church. All that, you could make that argument and probably convince a lot of people of that argument until Israel is back in the land. Now you look at Israel and you say, oh my gosh, if that's there, and, and we can now see 
exactly what the words of the prophet said. And we can see that demonstrated now in Israel in, in detail this, at the granular level. It's amazing, these prophecies, how specific they are and how many they are that are fulfilled. Then you have to, there's only a couple of conclusions you can make. One is, well, I guess the prophets are right about Israel being in the land, but you also have to have the conclusion that this Bible, this thing that I read, this Bible is a remarkable document because it's it's predicted what's happening 100%. I mean, it's, it's not a, like a best guess. The Bible is validated by what we see in Israel. So the point of all that is to say, you know, back to sort of our discussion of what's happening in Israel and these pogroms against the Jewish people, if the enemy of God, who's our enemy, could have eliminated Israel, could have eliminated the Jewish people, they would have. And you saw in the greatest persecution, interestingly, of the Jewish people right before the nation of Israel was formed. And in, and in, and in my opinion, that was a satanic effort to try to stop the plan of God. Because as you go, if we look at the next stage of this, what's next for Israel, we know there's conflicts that have been prophesied. We know there's going to be more battles that are going to be fought. We know the nations of the world are going to ultimately come against uh, Jerusalem, but God has said He will intervene, and He will He will intervene to where everybody will know it's Him, and we also know that all of this is a precursor to what is the what the Jews would understand is the coming of Messiah to save them, but also for us what we would consider to be the second coming or the return of Jesus. So these are these are these events are playing out, and we're actually witness to them. So I I think this current struggle actually, in some respects moves us closer to that. Um, there's a lot of people that are trying to say specific things about what's happening now and, and, and there is some there is some things there that you can pay, that you probably should pay attention to and of course you have to be careful because there can be a lot of wild speculation as well. Uh, so you have to be careful with that. but I think fundamentally when we look at what is the struggle in Israel, what is it that we're fighting? Um, what you're seeing is you're seeing, a, a, in my opinion, a, a classic struggle between good and evil, the sons of light and the sons of darkness. Uh, so what you're seeing is you're seeing uh, this wanton destruction and death of the Jewish people that seems to be an irrational hatred. The idea that Hamas was going to somehow have a strategic victory was never in the cards. They, tactically, they were successful, I, you could argue, but but if you're if you're going after the entire destruction of the Jewish people, um, it's a it's it's a the loss of life is horrible. Uh, but you didn't really accomplish anything. You you just murdered people. That's all you've done, and now you're going to pay for it in a way that I don't think they expected. Um, and so you have to ask the question: what's the, what's the point, Hamas? What's the point, Hezbollah? Or is it just this irrational hatred and? Uh, uncontrollable impulse to want to murder Jewish people. I think if you to the you have to go back to the their ideology and unfortunately this is rooted in Islam. Um, but to die as a shaheed, to die as a martyr is uh, is a good deal. Uh, because um, for one, uh, we know that uh, those who will be willing to literally sacrifice their life in the past have been so supported their families have been celebrated or i mean they, their their death has been celebrated their families have been taken care of this is uh, where some of the uh, money goes uh, that uh, the, the the billions of dollars that have flooded into into the palestinian hands and and uh, over the years have gone to essentially provide benefits to those who were willing to sacrifice their life in this great struggle to eliminate the infidels 
uh, which are the Jews and the Christians. Um, so yeah, I think I think you have that motivation. It's like it, it's, it's a heroic way to go. So they're willing to sacrifice their life. Um, they have a different view of life. They don't value life quite the same anyway. This is why they would be willing to put their women and children in front of the fire, um, essentially to use the uh, um, enemy's sensibilities uh, against themselves. In other words, it, you know, they, they'll put women and children out front knowing the Israelis don't want to shoot. If the Israelis fought the way they did, this thing been over been over years ago. <laughs> yeah, uh, but the but I think there is the um, there is a there is a there is a, a a I hate to use this term, but there there is a a certain victory in this for Hamas. Okay, can they win a battle with Israel? No, they have bloodied them like they've never been able to bloody them before. They consider that a victory. They celebrate that. They are handing out candy and having parties all over, all over the, you know, whether it's Iran or, and other on the, on the Arab street that is being celebrated. Um, so I think they see a victory in that. I think that the other thing that they see is that they're going to draw Israel in to a battle that is going to force Israel to alter its strategic plan. Well, I shouldn't say they're, they're, they're um, rules of war. That's what I meant to say. So, so now the rules of engagement, Israel's going to be more aggressive and they're going to exploit that as they already are uh, to bring more pressure against Israel. So if they can do that, if they can create what we've seen people riot, you know, people demonstrating and up and up on Capitol Hill in the cannon building, or they're having a, demonstration or a riot or something on a college campus if they can get people in europe and elsewhere all worked up over the, what the terrible things israel is doing to you know to the to these palestinian peoples and people in gaza or or in general um th there's a victory in that for them so i think from an from an objective you say well what what the, how, why would you fight a war you can't win well in a way they can bloody the enemy and they can bring world pressure against the enemy and I think they feel like that weakens Israel. And so they feel like even if they lose this battle, they'll keep coming back. They'll keep coming back. They'll keep coming back. And in the long term, they will win. Um, it's really interesting to me. I heard this recently, and, and, it, and it really kind of, I don't say surprised me, but it, it helped me understand a little bit about what's happening. You know, you would say Israel is back in the land and it's not going anywhere. We know from Scripture, by the way, that when Israel comes back in the land, as we have seen it happen, um, and we see prophecy fulfilled, we know from those same prophets that Israel is back in the land and there's no dispersion again. There's no, you're going to be thrown out again. We know there's going to be harm. There's going to be hardship. There's going to be times where Israel is going to be attacked, but, but Israel isn't going anywhere anymore. And that's what I say to the church. Israel and the church have not coexisted for 2,000 years. Now they do. We're back in the first century, and that's not going to change. So, so the church, we have to understand what's going on, and we have to understand Israel's not going anywhere. So you've got to reconcile with that. But I think for the, the people that are fighting this battle right now, um, they don't think that way. What they think is they said, you know what history says, history, uh, we can read a, a history book, um, that uh, the Crusaders were here for about 200 years and, and they were eventually expelled. So you know what? 
even if Israel just celebrated a 75th anniversary, if we just keep at this, we play the long game, eventually we're going to get them. And I think that's that's the idea uh, that we're going to get them. And they also want to, the other thing is happened with the Abraham Accords. You have nations that have said it's actually better for us to partner with Israel than to fight with Israel. And it doesn't really profit us to, to, to fight with Israel. So now you're seeing you know, the nations that are in the Abraham Accords that have joined in, in, in peace agreements with Israel. And the Hamas wanted to disrupt the deal that uh, Israel was trying to establish with the Saudi Arabia. Uh, and there's lots of reasons why Iran would want to disrupt that. Um, well, that's, that's the great state uh, that represents Shias. And obviously, Saudi yeah, you, it's, yeah, at the heart Sunni. of this, you do have a, 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 the, the Shia, Shia-Sunni conflict, which helps in a way unite the Sunni nations against Iran, which also puts them, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Right. And so uh, puts them puts them in league with Israel. And Hamas wants to disrupt that. Iran wants to disrupt that. So uh, right now that's been kind of tabled. So I feel like Hamas in this, in this struggle, uh, I think, was willing to pay whatever price they had to pay to do the damage that they've done. So from their perspective, I think they would they would consider this a victory. I said it was less than 24 hours, actually less than 48 hours that you joined me because you had some other things going on to include in the, in the last 48 hours. You had an imam or somebody who came to your church to speak about Islam. Is that a fair that's, statement? That's correct. We had, uh, it wasn't an imam. It was a man by the name of William Federer, who's a, who's a great historian who um, has a program that he puts out every, every day called American Minute. And it's uh, just a historical perspective. He is um, uh, a gifted historian. He's one of these, these, these uh, well, I'll put it this way. He, he, I wish he'd been my high school history teacher. I actually had a good high school history teacher, but, uh, and I liked history because of that teacher. But, uh, but I've had a lot of teachers I didn't like, and some people can make it boring, and this guy doesn't. Um, he has a way of sort of piecing together make you, to make you under make you see certain patterns within history that you know that are interesting to look at um and one of his one of his topics that he is is uh, an expert on is islam he he wrote a book called what every christian needs to know about islam and uh he has been threatened for this he's been picketed for this and i was worried that the church would be that we'd have protests at the church and we didn't and we got him in before anybody I think figured out he was here, but he has spoken in Richmond before. He's spoken to federal uh, uh, law enforcement agencies, local law enforcement agencies to help them understand what Islam is. So what I asked him to do, this is not what we initially asked him to do. We actually had him wanted to come in and talk about uh, some of the history of, of socialism and because uh, he is an expert on that as well. And uh, and what ended up happening was, is that we, we because of what happened in Israel, I, I said, you know, William, but Bill, can you, can you do your presentation on Islam? And I felt bad for him because he tried, he needed a whole evening. We gave him about an hour and a half, but it could have been three hours to try to unpack this. But, but he tried, but what he does is he goes back into the fundamentals. It's sort of like, what is the basic ideology that's driving someone to pick up their gun and shoot at the Jews? Why are they, why, why are they killing the infidels? What, what is, what is their core beliefs? And, and he says this uh, dispassionately. It's not like it's a, uh, I've heard him give this lecture before. And uh, he's presented it in a way, it's just the facts. You know, you say, here's the history. Because you don't necessarily hear this history. You don't really know, Americans don't really understand this. And Americans don't understand. And I would also say, uh, to a large degree, what, I, what so, some people have called the liberal left, 
or the liberal mind, uh, some people have said that they don't really understand that people will actually act on faith. One of the issues that we have with a State Department that's continually trying to appease a country like Iran is they think that somehow if we if we give them money or we, we help their economy or we partner with them in some way that they won't want to kill us. Uh, that might be true in some settings and in some countries and some theaters of operation. But when it comes to Iran, what we don't understand is what's happening in the Middle East is you're fighting a holy war and you've got, you've got these fundamental ideologies uh, that, that are competing with each, with each other even, uh, like between the Shia and the Sunni that you mentioned. But, uh, but, but the, the fundamentals of Islam, in other words, their objective needs to be to establish this world caliphate. And, and they, they're determined to do that. And uh, initially by controlling the Middle East, uh, uh, the history of Islam has tried to conquer Europe many times and, and it's nearly succeeded at least uh, uh, a couple of times. And uh, I think we need to understand that we, are, we have been fighting this for a long time. It's actually in the Marine Corps hymn from, mm. from the... Was it the uh, from the uh, was it the halls of Montezuma, the shores of Tripoli? Yes. Yeah. So it's a uh, we've been fighting this for a long time. People don't realize this, and so that was our intention at, at Berea. Is it was just God's timing to have this guy to speak on that, and I think a lot of people walked away. First of all, um, probably going, "Wow, there's a whole lot more here than we knew." Uh, it was almost too much history to unpack. We could have shortened it, I think. But one of the things that I realized that I need to do going forward is to try to break this down for them. I, I've done lectures on the green line. How, you know, what does that mean? How did, you know, a, a presentation like the maps of Israel. You know, you know what, was a, what was the biblical map of Israel? How did this get divided over the years? How were the lines redrawn? Where did the Palestinian conflict come from? You know, um, we're at a point now where I really feel a sense of urgency for the, the the church or the public to sort of understand the dynamics of this because what they're hearing in the media narrative, especially from the legacy media, is really um, not the real story and and unfortunately leads to in, increased anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism. And, 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 it, and, and, and you got to remember, Zionists also embraces uh, a lot in the evangelical community. So it's not just the Jews that are, that are, that are going to be you know, under attack. Um, uh, the Christian community would be under attack. America could be under attack. I, I, I tell people that Israel is actually right now the front lines of a war you're fighting here in the United States. We, don't, they're, they're, we are likely to have another 9-11 yeah. maybe in a different form. They certainly have the, des the desire, right? I talked to a, uh, a sheriff, a retired sheriff, who was down on the, one of the border towns here in the United States. I talked to him because he is a, someone that I had taken to Israel as part of a leadership group. Um, and uh, he, he was talking to me yesterday, and he was saying that, um, he said, I've seen so many people come across that border. He said, just, you know, people have fled across. And there are a lot of young men of fighting age. I said, I feel like I've watched an army march across our border. Wow. And he said that uh, we know Hamas is operating on the border. We know that uh, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, we know that these terrorist groups uh, are operating uh, the, in, in and amongst the drug cartels in the, on our border. And, uh, you know, there, there's a very real threat. There's a very real threat that, that uh, we need to be aware of. Uh, I've never done this out of the 200, I think you're my 239th episode. I've never made this offer. 
I want to have you come back consistently because I want to continue this conversation because it's not just hours of dialogue you and I could have. It, it, it's it's probably <laughs> days and weeks. Uh, and, and I want to keep learning mm-hmm. as well. Uh, and I, I, I want to, if you'll allow me, tap into your network uh, of folks that you know and, and have them basically educate people. I, I, I think that's a... There are people that are trying to prevent other people from knowing basic facts, and right. and I'm, I want to be part of uh, helping in that situation. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah. So, Mark, uh, it's been over two hours. I, I usually <laughs> go about an hour, fifteen minutes. Uh, I appreciate you doing this on on short notice. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will gladly have you back. I love the conversation, and I uh, appreciate uh, everything you're doing to make the world a better place. Well, thank you. God bless you. I appreciate being here. And uh, I appreciate any help in, in, in getting it out, you know, just in terms of just people understanding what does this mean? You know, what does it mean from a historical basis? What does it mean from uh, uh, a biblical basis? What is really going on? And uh, how should we, how does that affect how we think about it and react to it? So thank you very much for this opportunity. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd also really appreciate if you'd rate and review us. You can find us at scodopodcast.com.